Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, welcome to the Ethics Experts podcast. I'm here with uh, Adam Posner. Did I say that right? Posner or Posner? Posner. Posner. See? Glad I <laughs> That's all good. So I appreciate you hopping on, man. Uh, I've been, this is, I've followed you a lot on LinkedIn. I've listened to your uh, podcast cast the podcast. Um, you talk about a lot of stuff that kind of resonates with me and I think with our listeners. So just kind of excited to start chatting and, uh, you know, kind of get to know you a little bit. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, just to give you a little background on the ethics experts, we're trying to elevate ethics and compliance and HR professionals to the strategic lever that it's supposed to be. This is, uh, these are functions that have largely been looked at as check the box, you know, kind of need to have type functions. And in our own experience, and I'm sure you can probably speak to this, um, there's a lot of power that these functions can unleash and unlock in an organization. And so um, a couple of the episodes of your podcast that I've listened to, I thought, man, we could just get, get him on to kind of share his experience and share his story and share some of the takeaway. You know, you're somebody that's always come across as some like really authentic um, you know, you've kind of shared some vulnerable stories that to me were like very powerful and, um, you know, very strong and, um, just, you know, I'm hoping to capture a little bit of that strength and magic, uh, on the ethics experts. I I'll hope to aim to bring that to you today, man. Okay. Well, and if, if you don't, we'll just sort of start over and do it again. That's, that's fine, man. If you don't <laughs> like it, we could, we could, uh, we could take them all again. Okay. Very good. So why don't you um, tell us a little bit about, you know, tell us, tell us kind of who you are, how you got into the game that you're in and maybe describe the game that you're in. Cause I think yeah, ab- to it is pretty interesting actually. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So as I like to say, long story long, but for the sake of your listeners and your airtime, I'll keep it short here. Born in, born and raised New Yorker, uh, as I showed you on this awesome metadata map over here. Um, something that I take a lot of, a lot of pride in. And when I was in school, my mind was set on marketing and advertising was doing a ton of internships. I interned for the Buffalo Sabres up at school. I knew it was what I wanted to be doing, right? Right out of school. And I jumped right in when I graduated, landed a job at an ad agency, you know, learned the ins and outs of that, worked at a couple of other ad agencies. Uh, And then in 2006, um, Howard Stern, who I'm a big fan of, someone that I model my interview styling off of, uh, made the move from terrestrial radio over to satellite radio. And one day I was looking at the job board at Sirius Satellite Radio. That was before it was Sirius XM Pandora, um, <laughs> all the names on there, just when it was just Sirius, right? right. Um, and I landed a great job there, and I spent five years uh, in their marketing department there, uh, selling radios and subscriptions. It was awesome. Um, and when I mean selling, I mean it was uh, direct-to-consumer marketing, email, working with all the big channels, all the big sponsors there. Um, putting what was that like? Packages together. It was awesome, man. It was the Wild West. And what I mean by that was it was a larger organization but it was still relatively young in its tenure, right? It was still maybe six or seven years old by the time I came on. And when Howard came on, before he came on, they had about a million subscribers and then they went up to 30 million within the first year. I mean, if you think about that incredible growth, that hockey stick um, and having to level up the marketing, level up the internal resources there, um, it was insane. So it was kind of like a startup within a a larger organization. Um, And then for some stupid reason, I decided to make a move in 2011 over to American Express, which was a completely different... (laughs) Uh, experience for me culturally. Um, and I knew on day one that it wasn't the right move for me. It didn't feel good in my heart. It didn't feel good in my really? stomach. You knew um, immediately. I, immediately. I knew immediately. Immediately. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you have a sixth sense about something, like you have to trust your gut. Yeah. Uh, and it, and I can't put my finger on it. I can, actually, I could tell you when it was. It, Amex, if we're talking about HR and talent and everything, 
they have an incredible onboarding process. Their whole onboarding, it's about a week, um, and it's everything from understanding the history of American Express to understanding the nuances of the culture, the policies, the processes, incredible stuff, right? But yeah. it really wasn't until, um, it was an interesting moment. I had a buddy, a buddy system that they had there in the first couple of weeks, and the buddy would walk me around the halls and introduce me to people, and I shit you not, hopefully I could curse on your show, I shit you not, people would say, hey, nice to meet you, where did you go to B school? Yikes. Instead of where did you work from last? Like, where did you come from? So we're talking at that point, I was, I don't know, 10 years into my career post-college. Is that the first question you ask somebody? What uh, country club did you grow up going to? It, it, exactly. So basically, they were sizing you up based on your pedigree. And then once they found out that I did not go to B school, you got that kind of smug look, right? And I'm not saying that everybody did this. There were some absolutely great people there. But that's not the type of culture. Anyway, long story short, I stuck it out for a year and a half. Um, there was an organizational change where a new president came on board. And you'll find this interesting. 300 people, they said to them, you could either take a severance package and leave or re-interview for your current job. <laughs> oh, I was like, I don't even like it here. You think I'm going to re-interview? Right. Um, and at the time, my wife was about four weeks away from having our, our daughter. And I said, screw that. I'm taking six months off paid health care to figure something else out. Right. right. It was incredible. I mean, how many times in life do you get a chance to do that? Um, took full advantage of that. But during that time, I said, let me really think about what I love to do, what I enjoy doing. And it was advertising and marketing. So I jumped back into that, uh, spent a couple of years at some different search firms. And finally, you know, uh, you know, the name Gary V kept popping up all over my radar, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yep. And this is before he was a household name, man, right? And so how is he another, popping up on yeah. your radar? Were you going to the wine shop? I'm kidding, of course, but like- No, that's a good one. No, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't going out to drink. Yeah, it was, it was a buzz for, and, and back then we're talking 2014, he was not a household name. So I was a student of social media and social marketing. That's what I did for a living. And Gary got on your radar, right? If you were in that world, you knew who Gary was, saw what he was doing, you heard about VaynerMedia. Uh, and it was something that I wanted to be part of. And luckily for me, I, I, I got the opportunity to interview. I kicked ass on the interviews and I got the job. So that was, that was certainly exciting. But, uh, you know, as they say, the grass was not always greener on the other side, man. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, I'm sure they didn't ask where you went to B school. Like, no, it, it doesn't seem not. like that kind of a culture in that at that company. No, not at all, not at all. And 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 the and the interview process was great. I mean, it was a couple of lunches, right, which I love, um, with uh, some folks that are still there that are that are awesome. Um, and it was interesting because if you work at an ad agency, normally when you're hired at an ad agency, you're hired for a specific account, right? Like, oh, you're coming to work on Pepsi. You're coming to work on. Right. Frito-Lay on Apple, whatever it is. So when I came in, they did not have an account for me to start with. And I was like, um, okay, you know, maybe they're figuring some shit out here. Uh, but it never kind of really landed. And then before you know it, it was Thanksgiving and then it was Christmas and then all of a sudden it was the new year. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, man, like I, I had some other things going on in my life personally. Um, I had some things that I was working through in my head. Um, yeah. And there was some shit that happened there and I did not course correct. I did not bring my A game. I wasn't the best Adam that could be. I did not yeah. do what they hired me for. And I lost my job, man. It sucked. I got fired. And, you know, I take um, most of the responsibility for that. But uh, it changed my life at that point. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, we obviously don't have to get into the nitty gritty details of it, but it sounds like, you know, just from other conversations I've heard that like it was some kind of a mindset thing. It was some yeah. kind of a thing like that. 
And I'll, you know, before we get into it, I'll just kind of commend yes, you. Like I've never heard you made like make a bunch of excuses for it. You seem to be a guy who's been able to take this. Gotta own it. Yeah, you gotta own it, but not only own it, like you've built from it. And like sometimes, yeah. you know, the forest has to get burned down to grow, you know, to grow stronger and stuff like that. But it takes that kind of good mindset to in order, yeah. in order to kind of get up through that J curve. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And I appreciate that because during that time, anybody who's been there, I mean, I don't know if you've been fired before or let go. It sucks. It's humbling. And it takes you down to the bottom. And listen, for me, I've, I've been let go before. Companies have downsized. you lost accounts. But getting fired for your own performance is something different because it causes you to really reflect on its self-awareness. And for me, that I call it my self-awareness epiphany where I had to be really truthful to myself. And those questions were, A, am I good at doing this? And B, do I want to keep doing this moving forward? Uh, and the answer to the first one was like, you know what, I am actually okay at this, I'm pretty good at it. But the second question Mick, was like, I don't want to be doing this shit anymore. Yeah, and you know, it's hard to like, to your point, bring your A game if your heart's not in the game. You know what I'm saying? If, if you yeah, don't want to be mean, doing it, if it's not resonating with you or, and it's not resonating with your purpose or whatever, because your interests have changed or because, as you say, perhaps the grass isn't as green as you thought it was standing on the other side of the fence. I think there's a lot of power in being able to A, own it, B, not make excuses for it, and C, reassess and, you know, bounce back from it. You know, something that 100%. we talk about a lot is like, you don't drown from staying in the water. You don't lose the fight by staying on the canvas. Or I'm saying you lose the fight by staying on the canvas, right? Like you can, you can hit the canvas and get up. I botched that, of course, but like <laughs> you can fall in the water and not drown. It's about, you know, you know drown if you stay in the water. So, you know, I think a lot of folks who end up getting caught into this like sort of negative feedback loop or fall into these like self-fulfilling prophecy loops are folks who can never sort of own that bad thing that happens to them. And like any failure in your, like my life has been wrought with failures, dude. So like, but it's about sort of saying, okay, well I missed, I struck out on that pitch. So like, what did I do? I need to, do I need to keep my elbow up, my bat back? Right. What, do I, what adjustments do I need, need to make to my swing so that I can put the bat on the ball the next pitch, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it is. And I think that's why so many people have a problem bouncing back is because they can't ask the, themselves those really difficult questions. Right. And I had to do that. I was in a weird place, man. I was, you know, we, 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 I was 35. So it was like, all right, I've been doing this for 15, 16 years. Now what? Right. Am I, and as you know, in any career, there's a pyramid of, of opportunities, right? As you go up the ladder, those opportunities become smaller and smaller. And I asked myself a very important question. I go, am I going to be able to excel at the top of this profession that I'm in right now? Or is it my time to pivot? Still young, plenty of, plenty of room in front of me to build a career. And, you know, I, I had some really, introspective moments with myself, conversations with my wife, some trusted friends. And, you know, recruiting was my calling, man. And it was also an opportunity for unlimited financial success. And if you think about it practically, we just bought a house, right? So I went from living in the city, knowing what the rent was to this house that was extremely expensive, you know, out in the oh, suburbs here in Long Island. I mean, the taxes and everything. And I knew that I had to make a change and I bet on myself and I went all in, man. Well, that's an, um, that's an interesting way that you talked about that because, that introspection and saying, you know, is this really where, where I want to or where I should spend my time is kind of a, it's a hard room to sort of open the door to and step into, particularly when I think identity is rooted perhaps in that room. And like the identity should never be rooted in these temporal things, right? But like until you can go through that sort of, I guess what I'd call 
like a small ego death or something like that. Tremendous ego death. It wasn't small. It was tremendous, man. Yeah. Well, going through that yeah. process is like on the other side of it. I mean, stepping into that sort of chasm is scary, but on the other side of it, there's like so much clarity that can come from it, you know? Right. But you don't know stepping into that, what that clarity is going to be. I mean, now I can look back on it five years later. And I'm like, holy shit. It was like going through some crazy acid trip right? totally. and coming out on the other side and being like, whoa right like that keanu reeves moment you're like whoa like right right and like i wouldn't like i mean i've transformed and i'm not even just trying to like like i've transformed everything about me right i mean i certainly have my demons and all the shit that sucks but like focus energy purpose uh my mission is clear i have never been more excited about what i do for a living and it went from being and this is really interesting it's actually the first time i've kind of thought about it and talked about it to having this is Adam going to work. I come back from work now. And then it's home, Adam. Now it's all kind of like this blended harmonious thing based on who I am, what I do, the brand that I'm building. And I have everyone on board. I mean, my wife gets it. She understands, you know, this is the business I'm building and how it works. Yeah, we spend a lot of time. So we're kind of getting into some of the things that I think are really going to resonate, hopefully with our listeners. And that's that's this work-life balance thing, which always has seemed so bizarre to me. I mean, you just kind of kind of described it. I'm the home Nick. And then I get in my car and before I get out of the car, I better put on my, my mask, yeah. my work mask, and I'll be the work, Nick. It's one life, right? So it's not really about balance as much as it is about harmony. And until you can break down that sort of ego wall, that sort of yeah. Chinese wall between these two different personas, you're, that, that harmony is always going to be just out, out of reach. And like, obviously the lack of harmony is what it's dissonance. So like we're constantly then fighting that, that, that dissonance in our day-to-day -day lives. And then you bring that dissonance home and it spills over into your family life. And, you know, I think a lot of people are in these sort of spirals that you talked about that you didn't sort of get clarity to until you walked through that, I don't know, that like you know, that spirit walk or that, yeah. that, that journey, you know, through that, that scary room that, you know, we just talked about. Yeah. Um, it was like an evil vision quest. Yeah, that's the word I was, I was trying to get to. Yeah, it's a vision <laughs> quest that, you know, and it seems so scary to do. Obviously, it is scary because you're, you're questioning these assumptions and who am I and is who I am, who I thought I was. And it's what, deep. You're spot on, man. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it, it's a real thing. And, you know, again, that's, that's this sort of armor that we end up building um, for this public persona. And, you know, um, anytime there's a failure that's like public, a failure I'm putting in quotes, because nothing really has to be a failure. It can always be a lesson, right? But anytime there's that public failure, we come to that crossroads of saying like, okay, am I going to like ex make a bunch of excuses about this? Or am I going to say kind of lean into it and own it and like look at it and say, okay, well, what can I learn from this failure? Because there's a lot always to learn. And how can I, you know, make this be a sort of monumental moment in my life to pivot or like you said, to get better or to break down that wall that allows me to sort of integrate my full life and really pursue my purpose in all aspects of my life. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. It was, it was an epiphany, right? And, and I remember that moment when I went from making excuses about why I left that job to saying, hey, listen, I got fired. And it was so right. crazy because once I opened up and I was comfortable with that, first of all, no one's judging you. Anyone that judges you is not your fucking friend or your family, right? But those right. people are really like, hey, that's awesome that you opened up and, and talk about it because so many people do not. And well, once I did that, it. and that's that strength piece that I'm talking about, because um, guys are so scared about like, well, what's everyone going to think? Oh, what if every, everyone finds out that I'm just a scared little boy? Well, guess what? We're all scared little kids. 
You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like we're all just driving around in cars. Everyone still has these feelings of insecurity. And when somebody like you can step out and tell their story and everyone's like, you know what? I have those feelings and I have those fears. It's a really, uh, I'm just saying that there's like a lot of strength in that vulnerability and leaning in, into that vulnerability, something that everyone's so scared to sort of touch ends up resonating with so many people because mm -hmm. it's a strength that folks want to have. And there's, there's a comfort in it, right? There's a power in it. hundred percent. So when we talk about, you know, so you made this pivot, you said, you know, I have an opportunity to kind of tweak this, you know, my approach, you had this sort of vision quest moment, this ego death, whatever, you found your new purpose um, that resonated with you, you jumped into this recruiting game. Um, this is what I kind of wanted to start kind of moving toward, like your, your approach to recruiting is always, I mean, it's obviously sort of slated and rooted in your experience and the lens, the lens you see the world through is your eyes, right? Which is a function of your experiences and so forth. So as we talk to ethics and compliance professionals, to HR professionals who are trying to break out of this mold, trying to break out of this right. hole that they're in, what we're trying to do is help folks understand that like there's a lot of power to unleash that that power you're going to be unleashing is going to be through affecting people unleashing their gifts in pursuit of the organization's mission we're talking about culture and purpose mm. touching folks right touching individuals this is obviously resonant with you as you look to work with different organizations how does this culture aspect play into your recruiting efforts a and how do you see it uh, as a higher you know um, a higher criterion on the list that uh, candidates have when they're looking at, you know, places to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people throw around the word empathy all the time. I think that's a buzzword du jour right now. I think we could all kind of agree on that. Uh, I think that there's one thing to say it, there's one thing to know what it means, and there's a whole other thing to put into your practice. Okay. And I built from day one as a recruiter that empathy was going to be my core value. My core value when talking to candidates, my core value when I'm engaging with potential clients, which are the, the, the agencies and brands that I work with, saying like, listen, this is not a transactional business, right? It is on paper, but we are dealing with people here, right? And it's about understanding, and it's not to sound cliche or anything, but like understanding that everybody has a story, right? Everybody has a reason, everyone has a story, everyone has a journey, and understanding that and then making sure that they're the right fit as far as skill sets is critically important as well. And that's what I infuse. And I think that so many organizations these days are really understanding the true ROI of people. People are your business, right? People that work there. And if you put empathy first, you're going to win. So tell me some more about that. <clears throat> yeah, I think so, there's a generational shift going on. You know, 100%. The, thing, the thing I'm always talking about is 30 year, years ago, people thought of IT the same way that they think of HR today. It's a <laughs> check a the box thing. Oh, I need a, right. you know, I need a server. I don't even know what a server is. Oh, we need a website on this new thing, the internet. Like now it's integral to everyone's strategy, regardless of, of the business. But this ROI of people to, yeah. until there's robots everywhere, which is never going to happen in my mind. How do, how do we unleash this and how well, do we unlock that? Here's, here's the thing, I think, and I had this conversation with J.P. Elliott a couple of weeks ago. J.P. is the, uh, the vice president of talent at Dick's Sporting Goods, giant global, giant, I don't know if they're global, but national sporting good company. Mm -hmm. And we talked about once an organization, you know, because right now, HR and talent acquisition are not looked at as a profit center, right? Correct. And that's why they don't get the tension, right? That's what I'm getting you, at. You got right? it. So if you switch that mindset, right, and you take the, it's a capitalistic approach versus human approach within an organization, the people are your capital. Right. And once you think about that ROI of people, 
versus a commodity and realize that these people drive your organization. These people are the ones that are really the life and blood of it. Once that mindset shift happens at the top, it all funnels down and everything changes and they start to put resources and money into really developing the people, the culture, the onboarding, their talent acquisition process, right? That's where it all is. Part, man. You want to know the crazy thing? In my previous yeah. life, I- No, I don't like crazy. <laughs> the thumbs down crazy. <clears throat> no manufacturing company who's got all of its millions of dollars tied up in machine presses and whatever, they're yep. saying, all right, let's cut down on maintenance expense. We're spending too much trying to keep these machines running. No one's doing that. They know that if they make those right investments into keeping those machines running, uh, that's going to be the best sort of return on investment for them. But there's this weird breakdown to your point, you know, and I don't know if it's rooted in what you said. It probably is uh, where these capital goods are viewed at viewed in one way, whereas people are viewed in sort of another way. And I think they're viewed sort of in an opposite way, which ends up leading to a lot of waste. Yeah. I think you're spot on with that. I mean, it's, it's a mindset shift and, and it's happening. And maybe to your point, like if you look at it on the timeline, I think we're, I think we're, it's happening. And I think we're further down the line than we think. Uh, and these Goliath companies, like these legacy companies that have been around for a long time, some of them are at the forefront of it. I mean, you look at some of the initiatives happening at GE and Ford uh, and some of these larger companies because they get it right. They're losing talent. They're losing the best of the best to companies that understand this. So, um, so one is like a, a reactive approach. Like someone, like guys are going to get there one way or another, like they all got there with IT, or I guess there's three out, outcomes. You never get there and you die, or right. you get there on a reactive way because you're like, oh crap, I'm losing this talent. And yep, hey, got to catch up. Words in the New York Times, or you get there on a proactive way. And the real value is for guys to be those thought leaders who are getting there faster. That's really where the acceleration is going to come from. But of course, how do you, as guys who are trying to serve people in these roles, who are you know answering to people at the top who don't have those light bulbs on, how do we help them? How do we equip them to like get those light bulbs turned on? Is it a, is it white papers? Is it just us just freaking screaming from the rooftops more? It what is. is your mind? Do you think it's going to take for guys to get those light bulbs turned on? Or is it just, Hey, we got to wait till the generational shift goes more folks of our age are up there. Yeah, I think it's a mix of everything. And for me, I mean, I've hit some walls with some of my clients too. They're still stuck in that old school mentality. And I like to show by thought leadership of others, right? I like to show the Claude Silvers of the world uh, what's happening at VaynerMedia. I like to show, you know, some of these other organizations that are taking tremendous initiatives around people first, humans first, and show that, let's look at hard numbers, because sometimes these old school kind of mentalities, it's the numbers that, 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 that do the talking. So let's talk about numbers for a minute. Let's talk about retention and attrition of employees. Let's talk about the hard cost of that number. Let's talk, let's talk their language, Nick, right? Like, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the cost of hiring somebody versus retaining somebody versus having someone feel valued and stayed in an organization. Those days of people staying in, in companies for 15, 20 years and getting their gold plaque, those days are over. But they don't have to be. They don't have to be. That's a, actually a great point. This pendulum has swung from this side where guys would stay forever and they'd get their watch and then it's swing to this side where it's just, hey, I'm looking out two, for Two years one, done. And then Work boom, I'm out. <clears throat> but I think as more folks begin to prioritize, hey, I want to I work life that's a family. I want to work you know, I want to work somewhere that feels like a home, somewhere that values me and so forth. I think to your point, we can start to see that swing back. And I think in some little pockets, we're already starting great to see point. It. Yeah, I think, I think that's what we're seeing. I think the pendulum is a great example on that. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this culture thing um, at, 
at Amex, just to circle back, because um, uh-huh. really a lot of what we're talking about is, I think it's kind of going to be rooted at the top in terms of, hey, we're going to, um, like, whatever wheel is squeaking or whatever wheel needs the most oil, the top's going to give it that, right? So mm-hmm. when those light bulbs go on at the top, they're going to say, we're going to pour money into it. But when budgets are being cut, they're not cutting from sales because that's where it's at. They're not cutting from marketing because that's where it's at. We're not going to shut our website down because that's where All it's right. at. Um, as we get folks to swing, to turn those light bulbs on, move HR, compliance, whatever, into that other kind of profit center bucket, um, there's the direct way to do it or the indirect way, you know, which is some of the stuff you're talking about. But what we're really talking about is sort of like an endorsement for culture to be an asset, to be a strategic driver in an organization. And that's in any kind of organization, nonprofit, for-profit, whatever. Um, it sounded like some Amex, you know, and again, I'm not trying to bash Amex, um, but like it sounded like they had some things right, but it seemed like like it was it just on the veneer. Was it a facade yeah. of it? Was it just no. the people who were touching the the onboarding piece? But it really wasn't permeating through the organization. Talk to me about the. Well, the- this is tough because yeah, absolutely. Because first and foremost, it was a number of years ago, and Amex is a tremendous organization. I don't want to disparage them in any way. I'm talking about a few specific incidences when during my early days at Amex of those interactions that I had. Right. I mean. Right. Right. And I. And I it, it was that kind of feeling that I had. And that's just my feeling. I mean, that was my experience. I can't speak to anybody else's experience, you know, to that point at all. But you made a very valid point. Like, is that indicative of a bigger problem within that specific organization where maybe it was just a traditional cultural thing where, you know, anyone coming in at that senior manager level into that division that I was in, they were, their pedigree was a little bit different than mine. And maybe it created this culture of how the hell did he get in? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, there's that old saying if a fish stinks, it stinks from the head. And again, this is not about bashing Amex. It's just a picture of something. More that fish. I, <laughs> if it's a picture of what a lot of organizations go through. And again, organizations can change. And that's sort of the beauty of business. And that's the beauty of people. I mean, you're a picture of that. I'm a picture of that. Making that pivot and sort of opening our eyes to something new. There's a lot of power in that. But as we sort of look at this as like a metaphor or as a litmus test, for sort of this broader issue that I think is happening in most organizations. I mean, most organizations have somebody in them that what we're talking about is going to totally resonate with. They're like, yeah, people are first, man, without people, this wouldn't run. There's guys at the top who maybe think about it a little bit different that people are expendable and so forth. Um, But this culture thing, you know, to the extent that we can get that in people's minds to be a, a strategic lever, that's going to help accelerate a lot of the things we're talking about. So when you're looking at organizations or, you know, you, you talked a little bit about like hitting, hitting a brick wall with some clients or some, some potential clients. Um, what sort of things do you try to influence them on? Right. Cause like, to me, this is like so clear, this is like obvious, like pour the money into it. Don't cut corners on this kind of stuff. Um, what kind of like what what's, what's the the flavor of the resistance that you that you're getting and how do you try to try try to work against it? Yeah, and I, and I think it comes down to money, right? I think it's I think it's really there's times when it comes down to money when when it requires a financial commitment in a certain area. But there are things, and here's the flip side of that: there are things for culture that are free, and the biggest free thing that I always talk about: culture is not ping pong tables, cold brew on tap, Correct. none of that shit. Culture is how people feel about working in an organization. And there are elements to that. Do I feel valued in my job? Do I feel like what I'm doing matters? Is my value recognized? Do people know what I'm doing and value that and, and kind of give acknowledgement? 
feedback? Is there a constant loop of saying, how's my performance doing in this job? And do I have a clear career path within that organization? That's culture. And then the last part I put on top of this, do I like who the hell I work with? And in most cases to me, that matters. But some jobs, some people, they don't give a shit who they work with, as long as the other criteria is met. Right. But that's that's culture to me. Right. That's how I define culture. Yeah. So it's valued. You know, am I recognized for the value that I have or the value that I can bring? Is there a loop of feedback where there's that conversation like, hey, you're radical candor. Yeah. And, you know, am I in a box or is there a way for me to continue to grow? Because, I mean, what does everybody want? Everybody wants to change the world. Everybody wants to grow. They want to leave the world in a better place. (laughs) Then they left, they found, they found it, it yeah. right? Like, I mean, these are basic sort of desires that, that, that we not, all have in our age. Times. And, um, you know, that this other one, I can't really stress this enough. I'm glad you brought it up. Like, do I like it here? Do I like the people I'm here with? And yeah, your work a long time, man. You better like the people you're working with. Yeah, I mean, we spend all of our time there. We spend all of our time there uh, every day. And, um, you know, you talked a little bit about like this mind sh- mindset shift. Are you seeing it more in the market? And as you look over the next decade, describe to me who you think the most successful organizations are, both from like a leadership's perspective, hopefully it's rooted in the stuff we're talking about, I'm sure it will be, but like from a leadership perspective and from a like boots on the ground perspective, um, please. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it, it's coming from the, this infusion of millennial workforce, right? They have different values. They, they want all those things that I just spoke about. And it is that generational shift. And I think there's a function of two things. One, just this is what's happening, right? There's a shift in every cycle of life, every work cycle. Generations come and go. I think these are the values of this workforce. But more importantly, it's those senior leaders who some are millennials and some not recognizing what this new workforce wants, right? What they need to be successful and not buying into the stereotypes of lazy and entitled. That's fucking bullshit, man, right? I know plenty of millennials that are on circles around, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, and boomers, right? Like yep. any day of the week. It's that leadership that is agnostic and just recognizes people and what they want and how to make an organization run are the ones that are winning. It's really that simple. Like break down stereotypes. You know, value people for who they are. Value them as their, your core asset of your organization. Um, we talked about stereotypes and I think it's this like dismissive approach to it. It's like, Oh, these guys grew up, grew up with iPhones. I didn't have an iPhone, so they must stink. But to your point, um, it's about sort of valuing people as people. How do you help leaders that you deal with um, drive toward this thing that we're kind of talking about, which is meeting people where they're at and how do you help as you're finding candidates for folks, how are you trying to weigh out, hey, I got to meet people where, where, where they're at and meet, meet with empathy, but I got to balance that against, against sort of performance on day one so that I can keep my job with these guys. Yeah, dude, you're spot on too, because we don't talk about that a lot in recruiting too. Like, and I think that's why recruiters get bashed and you see a lot of this. Like, totally. there's, this, there's a word out there. The word is out there that every application should get an eyeball and a phone call. Every candidate should get a chance to interview. I completely disagree with that. Agree with you. I think that every qualified candidate should have some kind of response. There's a a balance. Big distinction, by the way. Right, because a lot of people apply for jobs that they're not qualified for. If I'm a plumber applying to be an astronaut, there's a disconnect there, right? right? And there's a lot of onus and responsibility on the candidate to apply for jobs that they're qualified for. And what I mean by that, generally speaking, because I believe in a pivot, I believe in career shifts and all that. But generally speaking, if you're applying for a job. It should be somewhat in your industry and it should, you should be checking at least 60 to 70% of those boxes before applying. Now, 
now i'm just saying very general, general high level right yeah yeah there's exceptions there's career pivots there's career changes i'm not talking about any of that and i think the problem is that we're flooding the market with unqualified applications and it's and it's drowning the process i don't think the process is necessarily broken i think there's elements of it that are because the barrier to apply for a job has gotten so much easier with technology let's think about this back in the day and i remember this i remember my first job out of school it was 2001 i applied with paper I sent a paper resume. Literally within the next year or two, it went straight to email. But we're talking within the last 18, 19 years, before it was so easy, you go on LinkedIn right now, I could literally hit easy apply every three seconds to a different job. Where's the barrier, the quality assurance to really ensure? Because here's the other thing too. Some people think that this whole misnomer, I don't want to get into a whole rant on it, but like there's an ATS, right? ATS is simply applicant tracking system. That's a database. That does not mean there's a robot on the other end that's literally screening your resume. Eight out of 10 times, there's a human being looking at every single resume. Right. I mean, sorry, I went off on a little rant there. but No, just- no. I mean, this is an important angle because I think anybody who's listening to this is involved at some level with this kind of stuff. It may be tangentially. It may be one step removed. But this stuff is going on in every single organization. So I feel like it's a totally germane rant, if you even want to call it that. It feels like it's really mm-hmm. insightful for folks to understand that- They don't know. Well, and then what does it end up coming down to when you got a stack of 80 freaking resumes to look at? What are you doing? You're starting to make decisions on like, is there a comma? You know, is the formatting consistent? Because like, how do I, these all sound the same. These all look the same. To your point, there's no robot to do it. So how do you deal with this del- this deluge of, you know, freaking things to go through? Right. It's, it's those that stand out. It's those that you see put in the clear effort that really care and want to be there. Right. And like simple things too. I mean, I mean, I mean, just to give you an example, right? Like the, there, when there's an opportunity for a cover letter in an application, either you use it or you don't. Right. And I'm perfectly fine with no cover letter. That's one less thing for me to read if you have nothing you want to call out. However, if you do go to use a cover letter, make sure that it's accurate. I will almost immediately disqualify you if you put the wrong name of the wrong company. Like if you're writing to me and you write to another company, that's Bush League, man. Yeah, and what do you what do you feel like that's rooted in? Is that a bias toward okay? I need a, something to I need I need some basis to disqualify somebody. So that's it. Or you think that that speaks to a heart issue in that client or in that in that candidate? I think that they didn't pay attention. I think that it's a simple copy and paste versus really giving a crap about the role they're applying to. So they didn't that, put in the research. It speaks to a sort of uh, an art attention to detail. Yeah, attention to detail, and also kind of an artificialness. Um, but, but you have to be a little bit mindful of that too. So I, I, I will call it a, if the rest of their resume is spot on, I'll call it two strikes. Got it. If their resume is borderline to your point earlier, I have a thousand resumes to look at. I have a thousand qualified candidates. How do you weed it out? I don't have the time in the day to call every single candidate. It's just a time versus it's, it's, it's a, it's a time. It's a return on time thing to your point. Well, let's talk about this. The average in-house recruiter at a company normally has 15 to 20 recs job open on their plate, right? They have 15 to 20 jobs that they are managing, right? Think about how much time they need each day for sourcing, follow-up. Listen, every job's going to be at a different stage in that process. It could be, you know, initial kickoff all the way up to we have someone final stage offer and everything in between. Right. But in most cases, they're managing a lot of different jobs and they got to rotate through them and they got to find efficiencies. It's just the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, yeah. I mean, it's just to your point, it's and, how, do you, how do you get through it? You got to get to the goal line. So you got to get there. And it goes back to the conversation we're having earlier about being a profit center or lack thereof. How does a company decide to put more heads against talent acquisition when it's not generating profit? 
when you switch to think about it, saying that people are our most important thing, you find that balance where you can shift resources so talent acquisition is staffed properly. And how do you how do you how do most organizations look at that recruiting function? Are they just saying, what is your time to fill the role? Is that is that the KPI? Or yeah. is it what is the you know the churn rate of folks that you end up hiring? Because they're kind of different, different metrics. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, because I, you have to have metrics in talent acquisition. Yeah. Um, time, time to hire is a, is a pretty standard one, but you need to know all the asterisks. You need to know all the caveats that go along with it because time to hire, it's not just my individual performance as a recruiter. It's the hiring manager, the company's process, what time of year it is, seasonal. That's another thing too. So those are all factors you got to take into that time to hire metric. <clears throat> to time, time to hire, but what's what do you think is like another dimension of like quality hire quality hire like how do you get get to quality of hire is it yeah it's, it's such it's, like a long tail measurement oh my god it's incredible right like what does that look like i mean i think it's more of a um it's kind of like an unofficial stat like i'm trying to use a baseball analogy but like i mean i mean they track i mean Statcast literally tracks every stat in baseball right they literally know how many times you throw behind a batter like how many times he grabs his crotch or something they literally track everything right um I was going to make a bad Houston Astros joke, but I didn't do it. Um, Look at you. Right. Like there's metrics that don't track where if you're a leader in a hiring organization, you have a sense be like, but it's not always the recruiter's fault. Our job as a recruiter is to source good candidates, get them in front of the hiring managers, but it's a hiring manager's decision to make that ultimate decision. So that really kind of lies on them. That's a good point. Um, that is a good point. I didn't hire them. What's that? Yeah, I didn't hire them. I'm just yeah. Your your job is to just send pitches across the plate that somebody could could put a uh, bat on. Um, Right. Talk to me a little bit. Good batting practice. Yep. Tell me a little bit about um, how the power has shifted currently in like today's job market because like the job market where I'm at super tight. All the all the other CEOs that I talk to, they're in a tight job market. So that power dynamic and shift ends up changing. Like I think the price or the cost, depending on which side of the market you're on of someone making that change. And how have you seen that tighter job market uh, change the criteria list that new candidates take when considering a new job when they already have one, for example? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's a candidate driven market right now. And that means that there's, you know, more, more jobs and candidates, right? So they have a pick of what they want. Uh, Companies are forced to pay higher than market rate to get the best qualified candidate. Um, which is really screwing up the whole system, man. Cause, and, it, and it shoots people in the foot a lot too, because if you're, if you're shooting, if you're, if you're coming in and you're getting much higher than your market, um, the company's gonna be less inclined to give you a raise or a promotion. And then you get yep. a bitch about it and look for something else. And now you're over qualified, you're over compensation qualified for your level. Yeah. And, and sometimes title too. quickly adjust to that new comp level to your point. Right. Um, you spend more, you make more, you spend more. And you, to your, to you, to your point as well, um, the expectation level shifts and you can even find, find yourself kind of in a hole off right. the bat where guys like, so okay, talk- well, now you got to prove yourself. <laughs> Dude, I wrote an article about this about a year and a half ago. It's so funny that you talked about it and I call it the misalignment of titles within hiring where someone's a manager and they think that they have been a manager for a year and a half. I'm ready for director. No, you're not right. But some company, they throw around director titles like it's freaking candy. And here's the problem. You go in as a director, you're all happy, you got your new salary, and then they're throwing you in front of a senior level seasoned career marketer at a big CPG company who's maybe 20 years older than you. They're going to chop you down, man. 
Yeah, you they don't know how to swim in those deep waters yet. Because you're not a director. You're not a real director. And that's a real problem, especially in the ad agency world uh, and in this market, because we need somebody. We're going to give them that promotion. We need to fill the role. If we don't fill the role, the client's like, you have all these open positions. Why does anybody want to work for you? You're not getting the freaking work done. And that's a problem. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, reality, man. That happens every day. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't know. There's like some, there's some human law in there that I haven't sort of come up with yet, but it's like, there's nothing for free. That? I'm no. thinking like, you know, uh, you know, matter cannot be sort of created or destroyed. Like it's kind of that, like, oh, it's there. Sort of like people value by changing a title. It's going to come to roost. You got to pay for that somewhere. And it's going to pay for putting a guy to your point who can't swim in those deep waters. He gets chewed up. It's a, uh, you can't get it for free. But but can I tell you something really interesting? And I have a couple of clients that I work with that I really hold in such high regard because they really are conscious about setting people up for success. Because there's some people that apply and interview for jobs where they might be a director level in a company or a senior manager going for that director title. And they're just not there yet based on what this company knows that that director needs to be at, that level. And they will say, listen, we really like, we really like Nick. He's a great guy. We think he would do great. But this comp is over and we just do not think he's able to hang with the, at this level. And right. those are difficult conversations, but in the end, they're doing you a favor. Yeah. But I guess they're doing you a favor if you have the humility that you obviously yeah. have to have gone no through one, that process. No one would like, that. Okay. This is not a failure. There's information in this failure that I can learn from. And maybe I'm not as good as I think I am, or, or maybe I do have a lot more to learn than I think I do. Yep. And um, I think if we can lean in into that, to that, you know, that humble pie or that, that room of humility, uh, we can really learn a lot more. It's hard for folks to, to do it, particularly in our sort of like performance driven economy and culture and stuff like that. Yep. Um, I have one last question for you before we, uh, we wrap up and I just want to get your take on this. Maybe you heard about this or read about it. Um, there's this thing at us bank. And again, I'm not trying to bash anybody, did you read about this thing? This guy gave somebody else 20 bucks. They were on, you know, they were down on their luck and then no, somebody got fired. So the guy gave 20, somebody 20 bucks. Yeah. It was like the holidays and uh, you know, he gave him 20 bucks to help him out, but it was like against policy and these uh, guys got fired. So now there's this huge backlash against this, this organization and the CEOs looking into the firing of it and everything. Just that's the gist of the story. And if it's not uh, exactly that, so, it's basically that. Well, banking's interesting, man, right? I mean, we're talking about compliance and regulation too. And, and there's so many things in, in, in our world too. Listen, sometimes it comes down to a couple of things. Sometimes rules are rules, but then there also has to be that human element, that quote, come on factor, right? Yeah, like that common sense come on, factor. Like, come on, common sense. Like, what the hell? Like, this isn't a big deal. But then where does that open up to? Is that a Pandora box for setting a precedent for every other like common sense kind of thing? And then what's the point of rules? It's a, it's a, it's a freaking, it is, it is. It's tough, right? Like, you know, the same thing, like don't cheat in very simple rule in baseball. You don't cheat on the game. You don't bet on the game. You don't cheat. Right. And that's when you have to like rules are rules, man. Why do you think Beltran lost the job with the Mets? Right. Why do you think these guys got fired? You can't do it. Some could say it's sports, sportsmanship, right? Like, Hey, listen, they figured out a loophole, right? right? They figured it out, but no. Yeah. So it's kind of a, to your point, it's, there's no easy answer on it. Um, That's a especially because to your point, it's, you know, human elements involved, common sense involved. What even is that in the context of a highly regulated industry, but also it's freaking 20 bucks. So I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a common, <laughs> that's a common sense on that one. Right. But then it's a precedent, man. That's a tough it's a one. Precedent. You, could, 
Because then, then like, oh, then it was only 30 bucks. It was only a hundred bucks. It was only a thousand bucks. Yeah. Um, well, listen, I want to be conscious of your time. I appreciate you, you, you hopping on. This was a great conversation. Uh, it was everything I was hoping for and more. I just appreciate your, your candor and your transparency about your process and how you've got to where you're at. How can folks find you? How can they hear more about you and how can they follow you and things like that? Give yeah, us a couple of I, shameless plugs. Shameless plug number one, find me on LinkedIn, Adam J. Posner. If you go to the other Adam Posner, you'll find the Australian Adam Posner, who's equally awesome, who I had on my podcast live, <laughs> which is the live version of my podcast, The Podcast, um, where I talk to great folks like yourself, everything from talent acquisition, career journeys, life journeys, and you could find all 55 episodes at thepodcast.com. It's a big deal to get past 50, man. That's huge. Thank you, man. It was uh, a journey. What number are you up to here? Um, so this is about five or six. So we're trying to stockpile a few before we launch. So I'm just a pup. Uh, I'm a baby. Dude, uh, dude, I'm telling you, I just hit my one year yesterday. Yesterday was a one year anniversary uh, of my first show. And I went back and I listened to it. And I'm like, wow. Like From, from, from that first show, which was a, uh, a networking call I recorded, to where, to where I am now. And I got some like, I just lined up some heavy hitters for, for the back half of of close to a hundred. And I'm like, Holy shit, man, this is real. But like, you'll see this. First of all, you're a great interviewer. Like you oh, got it. You're you. smart. You're sharp. You will see as good as you are now, when you get to 50, that interviewing skill set. it's a muscle, right? And you'll get there, man. It's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a great journey. It's like a great personal a, journey. A, a comedian listening to some of their earlier sets and just cringing. I'm sure there's some <laughs> of that in there, but that's growth. That's oh, what we're talking about. It, I'm telling you, man, it's such a, like, and I didn't realize it again till episode 50 and I went back and I listened to episode one and I'm like, all right, good on me. Progress. You know? Progress. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen, have a great day. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you. Uh, I just appreciate you as a person and uh, learning from you and you making some time for us today. Thanks, Nick. Let me know how I can help you out, man. I'm here. Absolutely, for you. buddy. Take it easy.